0: Today's interview contains the topic of drug usage, the occult, and mysticism, and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hey, I'm Philip Yanda from Katy, Texas, and I'm a barista. I love listening to Compelled, as it's sort of like a true crime podcast in that these are true accounts, however, each end in a good result showcasing God's glory. They are, as one reviewer puts it, shots of grace. Please enjoy today's episode. Everything I did was to try to eliminate my conscience to the point where I just didn't care, where I could rise above and be untouched by any sense of guilt or any sense of accountability. And it was working.
0: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled a seasonal podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. Last week, our guest was Yusuf Ogoro, a Muslim convert who found Jesus as a teenager, yet hid his faith from his family for years. But when his devout Muslim parents, relatives and mosque found out, they ordered him to recant. Could his brand new faith stand firm? You can hear that story by tuning in to last week's episode with Yusuf Ogoro. Just a reminder, we'll be holding a Zoom call with former guests Doug and Selah Helms later this week on Thursday, March 11th. To join, visit compelledpodcast.com zoom, and I'll email you the secret link. This week, our guest is Atticus Carr, a young man completely devoted to Hindu mysticism and New Age philosophy. But then one night, for inexplicable reasons, he began reading the Bible which opened his eyes to the truth. That story coming up right after a word from our sponsors. Atticus and I sat down in his home near Houston, Texas. He began by telling me about his life growing up in a place where you would least expect to find someone who would later become a devoted follower of Hinduism. Our story begins on a ranch in the Texas Hill Country.
1: So it was a 200-acre ranch, and then we bought an additional 100 acres, so it was old family land. The house that we lived in was built by my great-great-grandfather, I guess. Slightly modernized, but we had a cool stone fireplace, and we actually needed it for heat within the house. And It was pretty rustic. We would find scorpions and spiders crawling all over the walls and on the ceiling. And it was a beautiful place. We had, um, we had a huge creek that kind of went through the land, we had to cross it on three separate places going down our dirt road. We had fields, we had hills, and uh, it's in the hill country of Texas. We had a lot of fun. We we would catch lizards and snakes, all sorts of things. We had a bunch of cats, we had cows, we had chickens, uh, we had pigs. I grew up, I had two pet vultures that I found, which is illegal, but I know it was illegal until about a year or two ago. We found them as chicks, and I thought they were eagles because they're fluffy, and they had the down feathers. It's like, oh, these, these baby eagles. So we took them back to the ranch and as they grew up they got, they got uglier and uglier as it, as it progressed. They're not, they're not cute pets. Uh, so had those, so very interesting, we would kept, we'd find baby raccoons, we had have them as pets for a little bit. It was really, it could be the idyllic childhood um, living out in the ranch with, uh, with all the land we could just go. We would we just roam around it all 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 day. My grandmother lived across the county road, the farm to market road, and she had a thousand acres. We would help her cut firewood. It was funny; she would wield the chainsaw. We were like kids, even at like the age of like ten or eleven or so, when we were out there. Um, we'd be like, "Oh, can we do the chainsaw?" And she's like, "No." So seventy-year-old grandmother, she clung to that chainsaw. She loved it. Um, so she would cut all the wood, and we had to load it up. So we would go and work for her, and uh, and so we we learned to work really hard, and it's a great virtue. I think that was instilled to us on the ranch. In several
0: ways, Atticus's childhood was similar to many other children who grew up on ranches. And his experiences with Christianity were comparable as well.
1: I knew about Jesus Christ. I knew about, um, I knew about him dying on the cross. We knew that we were sinners um, to, a, to a, maybe a nominal understanding. It wasn't really hit hard, if that makes sense. I had a kid's Bible, I remember liking it. And we were part of Awanas. And I always was great with memory as a kid. I don't know why. So I remember we would go to Awanas, and I really coveted the social aspects. I really liked it, right? Because that was kind of the most social interaction. We did it for maybe one or two years, and I was a Sparky. And I remember I memorized all the order of the books of the Bible. I remember I rattled off 80-something Bible verses, but it it didn't mean anything. I can't even tell you what any of those verses were. Definitely had to be John 3.16, but I I don't know if any of the other ones were. Nothing stuck. It's like the seed that was that sprang up, but then it got choked out by the cares of the world. I remember asking God to save me when I was a kid. I remember three specific times, but I honestly don't think I was a Christian. I don't think I was actually saved because I don't think um, I had fruit evidence.
0: Although Atticus grew up in a household that claimed the name of Christ and in many ways seemed to have an idyllic childhood growing up on a Texas ranch, his family also had some very painful skeletons in their closet.
1: My father was, he was abusive. He was very um, angry and um, you know, tense all the time, because I think the stresses of raising kids and the ranch and everything else, and definitely personal sin in his life. I mean, he's never sexually abusive, but verbally and physically, and maybe psychologically, right? And uh, he had this dream of being a rancher, I think, but to, but to do that and school with four kids, it was just too much. But yeah, so we're out in the middle of nowhere, and we're isolated, and, it, and the abuse is kind of reaching a fever pitch. My mom became a travel nurse, so before she left on her first travel nurse assignment, she made a plan with us, this is very secret to my father. She gives us a phone card with money on it. And we had a plan of if things got really bad, we would run to uh, the closest neighbors, which is probably like two miles away maybe, right? But you have to cut through the land. Um, we were to get our brothers and we were supposed to run and escape and go and call her and she would fly back. And it was maybe a few weeks into her second assignment. We were really scared. And there was a time when, yeah, he, he got really abusive. I think he attacked me. and. Um, my older brother, for the first time, stood against them. They fight. We grab our brothers and we run through the land and we escape. So we kind of have to truck through our 300, you know, 300 acres. And we um, remember him driving around looking for us. We escaped and we made it to our neighbors. And we called my mom. We went with the plan.
0: After that traumatic experience, Atticus's mother insisted that they move away from the isolation of the ranch to Shenandoah, a suburb on the north side of Houston. And his parents soon divorced. Atticus and his brothers prepared to join a local private school far behind their peers academically.
1: So we moved to the city. I was very excited because now we're going to go to school. We're going to have friends. Um, It's a neighborhood. Everything was just so new. You kind of ride that high for a little bit. The summer we spent, we would rollerblade. That's not a cool thing to do. We didn't know that. So we would rollerblade. My older brother and I, we would rollerblade around the neighborhood into the mall. I'll never forget. Uh, We rollerbladed past all like the neighborhood kids. They were all cool. And We waved, you know, we were very dorky. We had high water jeans, just whatever, clothes from Walmart, right? We were just not cool. We didn't understand anything about the culture of, of secular uh, public schoolism. It was just so strange. So we waved and we said hi, and we rollerbladed past them. The kids, you could tell they froze in their tracks. Like what is, what are we seeing? <laughs> we had backpacks on with our shoes in this so we could go to the mall and chains out. Oh, it was terrible. And so that summer, we didn't really interact much with the kids in the neighborhood because, you know, how, how cliques are, they, they were just not going to have us. And I ended up succeeding in, in the eighth grade uh, private school, but I do remember not liking it because I was still weird enough to where uh, I didn't really make friends. I didn't like the kids in my class and the ninth grade class, which I should have been in. I was of their age. None of them really accepted me. They were all um, they were all within their own clique. So I still felt kind of lonely. I felt. Uh, I don't know, I didn't like it at all. I remember I cried I to my mom one day. I was like, I don't have any friends. And so I was interacting with some of, the, so, some of the neighborhood kids, and I really wanted to go to school with them. I wanted to be a part of the school system. I wanted to have the normal life, because I could tell that even the Christian private school was not the normal life. I think I had a vision for this regular, worldly, normal life. And I knew the private school wasn't that. And the kids in the neighborhood took me on as like their project to make cool. They taught me how to, you know, grow your hair long. This is what you wear to be, you know, to style. They had to teach me how to talk in the slang and the current vernacular of the people. But it was at the cost of my family. They said I had to forsake my brother, basically. Not in those terms, but they said, your brother's not cool. You can't hang out with him. They essentially said this, or, and, and they kind of ostracized him. So I really chose, it's horrible, I chose these people who didn't really care much for me at all. I was like a project. And so I kind of forsook my older brother, who was my best friend growing up all my life, and we became rivals and we became enemies, uh, actually. It was very terrible. This whole time I identified as a Christian. So even though I didn't care for Bible class, even though I didn't really care, I didn't read the Bible, I would, I would say that I, was, I would have said I was a Christian because I didn't understand Christianity. So going into the public school system, it was not a part of my life at all. I never talked about Christ. Um, but just know that in my mind, it was very subtle. I just you know, knew that I was a Christian or Christian race. I didn't think that I had to abandon it and or embrace it. I was just whatever.
0: There was no real foundation of faith for Atticus. Whatever head knowledge he had about Christ made zero impact on his heart. Atticus's desire to look cool in front of other people around him began affecting his behavior in more ways than just rejecting his brother.
1: I can't remember the time frame, but I think it was ninth grade summer. The first time I smoked pot was uh, at, at uh, a church camp. And I went there by myself, I didn't have any other neighborhood friends that went. And I, I got hooked up with some juniors or seniors and they were smoking pot. And uh, my friends in the neighborhood talked about smoking pot, the ones that I hung out with the skater kids. I don't think they actually did. You know, I think I might've been the first one to go off and do it. Um, but so I was already ready for that. We would, we would go and like take sips of their alcohol before this church camp experience. So I was already delving into it. One of my friend's parents, he smoked cigarettes. And so we would, we would find their cigarettes and we would share a cigarette here and there. So I was really ramping up. We went up into the into the woods, and I smoked pot with these with these with these senior kids at a church camp, of all places. And man, it was an experience. It was actually traumatic. They beat me up because <laughs> you know they're just like playing around. They like body box. I wasn't ready for that, so I was stoned, and, and and we did that. I got beat up, but even still, that didn't that didn't take me away from it. It didn't. Um, I don't know. I still found it very attractive, and I and I knew it was going to make me cool, right? If I did this sort of thing, I would be daring. I would be bold. So I smoked pot and I couldn't wait to go back and report to everyone, oh I'd smoked weed And I think it was a shock and so then I don't know how it happens in public school. It's so easy to get drugs man. so easy Someone is always selling it and so we ended up uh, I never my mom would give me $20 a week for lunch money And I would use it to buy weed and then my friends would buy weed and so we would all share Smoking pot and I never had any money for lunch. So I really failed in the school system. I was always tired um, I was always hungry because I didn't I didn't eat lunch at all when I was at school. I would have weed didn't go and uh, uh, in between two cars and I would smoke weed during my lunch break at school. i would smoked before. I was smoking weed every day, um, just religiously. Um, and so really that does lead. I used to not think that it, that it was a gateway drug as people said. Um, it definitely is. So after after smoking weed for about a year or so, by about uh, sophomore year, I was failing school. Um, I, did, I never did well in my homework, never did my homework. And then I could just kind of quit going to school. And so I was, I was losing ground as far as grades and I failed my freshman year and going into my sophomore year, I was gonna be a freshman again. And so halfway through my sophomore year, um, I just had no mind for school. I had no, not a mind for it, but I had no drive to even do it at all. So I ended up getting my GED uh, about sophomore summer. And then I, I was no longer in school. I, uh, I got my GED and I was drinking. And I want to be careful when I share this stuff, because I don't want it to sound like I'm glorifying it. And I, I, I'm afraid I tend to do that. Uh, I don't approve of this at all. It's, uh, if there's any use of this backstory, it story, is, it is to show that Christ can save. So I was really bad. I, was, I would break into houses in the middle of the day if nobody was home. And I would steal. I was looking for alcohol, money. Uh, I even, I don't know if I should say that. I even sold a gun at one point. Very, very dangerous. I was just really ramping up. Had nothing to do, no direction. I was living at home with my mom and I remember I had stolen a bunch of alcohol, a bunch of hard liquor and I didn't know much about it and I was with a friend in the neighborhood. And I remember we got very, very drunk. We drank maybe three entire bottles of liquor. I was blackout drunk. Was so drunk. I couldn't remember anything from the whole experience. But I remember I came home at night and my mom said I was belligerent. I don't really remember too much of it. She said I was very violent and very belligerent. And they ended up, she ended up kicking me out. She didn't know what to do with me. And I'd already been getting caught smoking pot and this and that, just utter, utter rebellion, utter rebellion. And, um, she, I remember she kicked me out and I went to my friend's house in the neighborhood and I climbed his roof and, uh, I don't know what else to do. I was very drunk and I climbed his roof and I went to go, uh, like knock on his window, but I heard him come outside. It's in, pretty late at night. It's probably like 10 o'clock at night on a school night, but he was coming outside. I heard the door shut. I got scared. and I fell off of his roof. Second story. I fell off of his roof and uh, landed on my back and got up and ran right away because uh, I was so drunk. And I ran right away and he's like, what are you doing? And I told him, I like, I don't have anywhere to go. So he let me stay up in his in his guest room upstairs and his mom was home. We're teenagers so he's not supposed to have anybody over, especially not me uh, in this state. And I remember I got alcohol poisoning the next day. I could have died. His mom went to work and I knew I needed to stay hydrated but I was throwing up every 30 seconds. No matter what I would drink, I would throw up. And I could have died, it was very bad. The Lord saved me there uh, despite all odds, and so that was pretty much the spiral effect. That was one of pretty much one of the last times I stayed with my mom. I had failed school, you know, everything's fallen apart. So I had to stay with my dad, who was living in Shenandoah with my grandmother, um, his his mom. So she was always home, and she could watch me and keep account of me. So she would let my dad know if ever I left the house. So I really couldn't leave. But even then, um, sin finds a way. I would. I got like a bucket or something with a string, and I would lower it down the window. And my friends would give me pot. I would give them money. They would sit. I would smoke pot upstairs because my grandmother couldn't make it up the stairs. And I remember when the month, when the summer was up, that I was supposed to stay with my father. I was going to go back to my mom's, but I had stolen a bottle of his wine and I had it in my backpack. And as we were leaving to go to my mom's, um, he knew he, he rummaged through my stuff and knew that I had stolen his wine. And he and also had I had also taken some sleeping pills of his. As I'm leaving and I'm on these drugs and I have the wine in my backpack and he pulls over in the neighborhood. There's a cop there who had somebody else pulled over and he says, hey, my son is trying to steal my alcohol or whatever. So the cop pulls me out, puts me in handcuffs. There's no real charge because my dad knew I had it. Um, I can't really be charged with minor possession of alcohol, although he wrote me a ticket. But I was on these drugs and I didn't know which cop to look at because you see multiple them them. I was very messed up and they didn't catch that. But they put me in handcuffs and, and they're behind your back, and I'm in the back of the car, and I put them to the front, and I got in trouble. The cop was really mad. It's a whole tra- traumatic thing, I was just out of control. No worry about authority, no worry about um, getting in trouble with the cops, because that was another badge of honor. Any time you got arrested, in my mind, makes you harder. And I think, this is a very interesting thought, I remember thinking this, and I think it was, I'm gonna say demonic, I don't know what, where, where people go with this, but I remember having a thought in my head, and it, and it kind of recurrent, it said, the key to freedom is to eliminate your conscience, and then you can do whatever you want. It's a very fascinating thought, because I think that's what sin will tell you to do. And the Bible talks about a seared conscience. And I remember thinking everything I did was to try to eliminate my conscience to the point where I just didn't care, where I could rise above and be untouched by any sense of guilt or any sense of uh, accountability. And it was working.
0: Atticus had no fear of man or of God, and his life decisions reflected that. He rejected every semblance of authority in his life and nothing was going to stop him from living the way that he wanted. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing even if your child is actually struggling with a concept which if left unchecked can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit RedeemTV.com or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at RedeemTV.com.
1: My mom's last-ditch effort was to was for me to go to like a halfway house, okay? So I signed up to go to the halfway house, and I was doing it. My motivation was for my high school girlfriend. That's important. It wasn't for my mom. It wasn't for anybody else. It wasn't even for me. It was so that way I could be with my girlfriend because her parents didn't want me to date her. And so I did this thing, and, um, and I hated it. I, I didn't like the control. It was too much. And I remember... They, they said, well, we can't keep you if you don't want to be here against your wall. I said, well, then let me go. Like, but we can only release you to your mom. And I yelled at my mom over the phone, like, you better come and get me or who knows what's going to happen. So my mom was furious. She picked me up. And I remember that was the last time I saw her or spoke to her for over two years. She dropped me off just in the neighborhood somewhere. I got out of the car, slammed the door, and then I was on my own, kind of homeless. I slept in this bush by my girlfriend's house. I slept at Parks. Um, all the while I had a job, and I was able to get showers and stuff at people's at my friends' houses during the day because I just looked like I was hanging out um, until every every now and then my friend's parents would catch on that. I didn't have anywhere to live. And so I would hop from house to house. My friend's parents would invite me in and I would stay, and I was very likable. It was very respectable to them. But every time that any kind of a rule was trying to be enforced upon me, I would rebel against it, then I would go be homeless again. So I spent about two years of Ambling about the whole woodlands area, being homeless and uh, and jumping from house to house, all the while doing drugs, spiraling out of control. Went from pot to cocaine to almost any drug. I didn't want to do heroin or meth or crack. I thought that was the cap. You just don't do that. So, so that was pretty much the extent of it. And all the while, every now and then I would spates of um, of criminal activity of breaking into houses, maybe robbing somebody for their weed, something of the sort. So that was pretty much.
0: And how old were you at this point?
1: Probably 15 to
0: 18. And what was your perspective on God at this point? Like, did he, did he even factor in your mind? You mentioned the searing of your conscience, he, that type of thing. He
1: did, and this is what's very fascinating. I would find myself, I consider myself a philosopher, right? I would always, I think a lot of smokers do, right? So I would always, I would ponder a lot of things. Even as a kid, I always pondered, why do I even exist? I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories laying in bed was, I don't understand Why it's me? Why do I exist? I even thought, like, okay, I don't know if you ever did this, like as a kid, you think, you you notice that you breathe, then you consciously breathe, and you're afraid of, you know, you're afraid if you stop breathing, you're gonna die. you don't. You recognize it's an automatic process. So I remember thinking as a kid, like, I don't understand how this is all happening without really any of my self-effort, which I think is important. For anyone that is an atheist, anyone that doesn't believe in God, you have to give ground to the fact that you didn't create yourself. You don't circulate your blood. You don't, You don't digest your food consciously. These processes happen automatically by the mercy of God and by the grace of God, that He sustains us, right? So as a kid, I kind of pondered, the fragility of existence and how the impossibility of it just kind of happening. So I would wax more philosophical as I got older, right, and started to hammer out concepts. So I would get into arguments with people while on drugs and drunk, and I would argue for the existence of God, Uh, but not for Christianity, because I didn't know Christianity, because anyone who is unsaved can talk about God in a general sense, right? We just redefine him. That's why we make a God in our own image. So I had made a God. That honestly didn't care what I did, you know. And I think I even rewarded myself for contending for him at these times. So God was present, but not the God. So that's why I want to be clear. It wasn't it wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. It wasn't the God that makes demands in my life.
0: Even though submitting his life to Christ was the farthest thing from his mind, Atticus was unknowingly being protected from his darkest impulses by
1: God. I was suicidal this whole time. Even from the even from the time on the ranch at a young age, I remember wanting to be dead because of the, uh, the traumatic experiences, right? So part of me rebelling in such a way and doing all this stuff was trying to curtail that moment of suicide, if that makes sense. I never really attempted it, but I thought about it every day. I was chasing my life in a way. I was chasing away being bored and being sedentary because I, fr- I was kind of afraid I was gonna kill myself. I always thought too, with, you know, without a biblical understanding, if you killed yourself, you would go straight to hell. Right? And I don't know where that came from. And I just thought, man, if I can just put myself in such intense scenarios, maybe I'll just die naturally and I won't have to worry about hell. There was a summer where I packed up my bags and took everything, quit my jobs without notice, and I went to Colorado on a whim. And during that trip, I get into a terrible car accident. It was my fault. Three other cars were involved. And so it was a whole ordeal. I crashed my car. I get arrested because they think that I was on methamphetamines and, and serious drugs. So they charged me with DUI, eight felony charges. It was very intense. So now I'm stranded. My car's crashed. I am completely unharmed. Uh, I have a scratch on my elbow. Um, it, was, it was terrible. Other people were seriously injured. Nobody was paralyzed and nobody was killed, and that is by the mercy of God. But people were seriously injured, and it was very scary because for months I didn't know people were going to die because then the charges change to manslaughter. It was going to be very bad. And so I got arrested. I bonded out. Of, of jail, but now I can't leave this small town. I don't know anybody here. So I'm stranded here in this town and I can't leave the state because I have this pending court case. I have to get drug tested every week and, and I have to stay at this homeless shelter. So that's, a, that's an, another story in and itself, but my life just keeps getting worse and worse, right? It just keeps spiraling out of control to the point of facing severe time in jail. And so I come back to Texas finally, I'm able to get my bond lifted so I can come back to Texas. I'm fighting this court case, looking at a lot of, prison time, possibly. And in in God's mercy, the charge got dropped to three years of probation, restitution paid, and five days in jail, which I'd already spent um, in the initial arrest. So I'm back in Texas, and I'm under the confines of now forced probation. It's not the first time I've been on probation either, but it's one of the most strict. And um, I just remember having all of this weight on me of now I cannot do the things I can do. Um, I can't smoke pot. As, as regular as I did, I can't really drink as regular as I did. So the Lord starts trimming these things away, right? And it's to the glory of God, I think, he started trimming these things away without the gospel being present, but I do think it was by his will. But I replaced these outward apparent sins of, of, um, of drug use and alcohol use, I replaced them with something much worse had a night where I watched Avatar The Last Day, I've been with my friend, it was it was a very entertaining show, and there's a part in it where this guru teaches the avatar how to meditate and how to clear his chakras, right? And so I remember I remember watching it, and I remember thinking, I wonder if there's something there? So I wrote down the method, which he taught him in this cartoon, and I went and did that, I went and did that. And I, I remember, I, I went through the process, and by the last time I went through the process, um, I went black or whatever it was, I don't remember. And I remember waking up, and I remember thinking everything is different now. So it's a very strange event. And I think is what, it, and that's when I, that's when I kind of abandoned Christianity all at once. So I think is what had happened is, I think I I think, I think I had replaced all of my outward, seemingly sins with self-righteousness. So I, I no longer was quite as suicidal. It almost completely went away. And I remember thinking, oh, Christianity is the problem. Because I, because I was suicidal perhaps because of all the guilt of all my sin, right? So I think maybe my conscience might have been almost officially seared at this point. So, so now, I think, now I thought I was self-righteous. And so now that's why I kind of looked more into Hinduism, because that's where meditation comes from. So I thought, okay, maybe there's something there. And so I started delving into Hinduism and, um, and a lot of mystic Eastern practices in the New Age. So it was a specific moment from that cartoon and from that day on when I officially said I'm no longer a Christian. I deny the biblical worldview, whatever whatever all that means, I didn't really know it, and now I embrace uh, the new age and the Hinduism.
0: From outward appearances, Atticus's life seemed to be getting better. He stopped smoking, drinking, doing drugs, and no longer committed crimes. He completed cosmetology school, began a successful career as a hairstylist, and even started a relationship with his future wife, Lauren. However, his spiritual state was even worse than before.
1: I met this lady, her name's Deva, and she was, she was New Age spiritual to the core, right? She's this older lady. We became friends. And again, she came right at the time that was necessary because I had just started reading uh, the Vedas, which is the Hindu text, right? I just started reading them. I downloaded them onto a Kindle and I'm reading them. And she told me about this guy, Yogananda, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, who started the Self-Realization Fellowship um, in the United States. He came from India. And I remember reading this book and it was, again everything that I had started to, to develop. He was an ascended master to teach the way of enlightenment. And his mission, this guy, this Yogananda guy, was to show the spiritual meaning behind Christianity, where he would take the text and even wrote a like, really extensive two-volume um, commentary on the Gospels, where he changes everything so subtly and so well um, And yeah, he changes it to mean something different, you know, takes away from the deity of Christ, takes away from the exclusivity of Christ. So anyway, so this lady is telling me her experiences, how when she read this book as a kid, he appeared to her in light form on the bed and said, this is your teacher, and showed her this other guy who who appeared in an ethereal kind of light body, and it was the teacher who she met later on in life. His name was Bawa Muhiyadin, and he was a Sufi, uh, 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 a mystic. And so when I met her and did her hair, we started talking about this almost immediately. And I was like, this is exactly what I'm just now studying about these beings of light and these ascended masters. And so while I'm in beauty school, I developed this friendship with her. So I'm growing in this spirituality, right, and in this new age philosophy. um, My goal was to pay off restitution, get off probation, save up enough money to pay off all my debt. And then I was going to go literally live in the woods in the Himalayas somewhere and become, a, and become a yogi and become a monk, because I had all the spiritual insight. And again, I got praise for this from David. She's like, you know so much. And, um, and other people who I'd meet in the spiritual realm, they're like, oh, wow, you really know all these spiritual truths. You know, you're, you're very elevated. You're an old soul, all this stuff. And uh, I remember I'd find a penny heads up every day for like, like oh, it was more than 30 days. It seems trivial, but but when you're believing in some kind of spiritual confirmation, right? I would go on these walks and get spiritual insight and then it'd be confirmed by this continual, you know, all these pennies are happening and a bunch of other things. So I'm growing in that. And so Lauren and I are dating. And so she's kind of coming along with me because she was raised Catholic, but very light Catholic. You know, they quit going to church at a certain point because again, if you just be a good person, why do you need to go to church? But, and this is where, again, not to give glory to sin, but the Lord used sin to actually keep me from falling uh, even further. So I couldn't control I couldn't control my lust, and she ended up getting pregnant. And so abortion was not an option. For some reason, I had a sense of morality; didn't believe in abortion. Um, and so we weren't going to have the we weren't going to have the kid. And I was very sad because I realized now my spiritual quest has been um, has been subverted. Yeah. I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh, no, no, I can't do this. But you can be spiritual still with, you know, with kids. We're only going to have one kid, of course, because then we can uh, really pursue, I can pursue the spiritual aspect. And during this time, my self-righteousness and my pride is skyrocketing because now I'm, not only am I, you know, not not really doing drugs so much anymore, not really drinking um, because that's low level spirituality stuff, right? So you want to start to meditate and start to have these spiritual experiences without the use of drugs. And so I'm really starting to ramp up in my meditation. I'm really starting to ramp up in my desire to be celibate um, to the detriment of our relationship, right? So I'm trying to have this child coming up and, and, and this relationship. And we're not married, of course, because it was a Christian institution and we were in rebellion against that. But I'm starting to become so self-righteous and so distant to where there's no longer intimacy. And I don't mean physical intimacy, but um, there's not even a love intimacy because the goal of these higher levels of spirituality is to eliminate karma, which is all kind of action. Okay, karma is action. So if you have any desire, good or bad, you have to reincarnate for that. So the goal is to eliminate that altogether. And you do that by distancing yourself. You know, you, ha- you can have children, but you don't really care for them. You let them do what they're going to do because everyone's going to work out their own karma. So I am now ramping up and becoming, I'm making way more money, working part-time, raising this kid in this more selfless Type of way we were vegetarians. I was a vegetarian for about five years. I was practicing ahimsa, which is harmlessness. Gandhi taught this, and my guy said, you know, so did Jesus, right? Thou shalt not murder. Again, twisted. Thou shalt not kill anything. You know, not even animals. So I would catch a mosquito in the house and let it go because I didn't want to harm anything because that comes back. So it's a it's the this practice of harmlessness. So that whole time it it was to the detriment of my relationship because it can't survive if you're trying to be selfless and attain these higher spiritual goals. You're going to abandon your wife and your responsibilities and your duties. And that's kind of praise. Whereas the Christian says, uh, the Bible says, if you shall not work, you shall not eat. And if anyone neglects their family, let them be counted as a, uh, as a Gentile, right? As an unbeliever. What did Lauren think of all this, man? So Lauren kind of, kind of tagged along. But those two years were horrible. We were essentially friends raising a child. You know, and we, didn't, we didn't fight. We didn't have these outward arguments. But I thought she was nothing. You know, I thought she was foolish or ignorant, or I just didn't, I was very indifferent. I think one of the most dangerous things you can be towards someone is indifferent. And I think the Bible kind of confirms this. It, just to do nothing is horrible, you know? And so we were just kind of nothing. There was a peace per se, but there was uh, there was nothing there. And I think that's so hard to do, raising a kid. That way, because there's no the kid doesn't see that love between the two parents. They and, and they kind of know that. So she was kind of tagging along with the spirituality. She kind of felt like I kind of blamed her, like if she felt an attachment to me and that I was becoming distant. I thought, well, it's your problem because of your karma and you're trying to hold on to something, and you know, and so it's going to keep her from from evolving spiritually. So I kind of just shunned her, and, I, and she kind of came along, but I think somewhat reluctantly. You know, she kind of molded to whatever I was doing. And in all honesty, I would have, I would have ended up probably abandoning my family.
0: But even as Atticus's self-righteous attitude was growing stronger and his affection for Lauren was declining, God was working in unexpected
1: ways. For some reason, we felt the need to have another child, and that is against all odds, again, because that was just gonna stifle my ability to become more spiritual. And so we just and so so we so we ended up getting pregnant again. And um, that's where we're pregnant with our second, our second boy, Ira. And after he was born, I moved into my, I progressed on my spirituality because I read all these, all these Eastern books. Okay, I read the Dhammapada, I read the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. A lot of these, a lot of these, um, these, these Eastern texts, that even like a lot of the Hindus don't even read, you know, because they're kind of postmodern; they don't really do it. So I was actually very voracious in what I read. And the the, the guy that I was a part of the Self Realization Fellowship, I read. A, Everything that he published, for the most part, everything. And even those guys don't read all of it either. And so we were taking our kid to, as we were going to their kind of church, where they would read both scripture and the Bhagavad Gita. And so he endorsed the Bible, this Yogananda guy, because he taught from it. And he, and he would encourage people to read the Bible and the King James Version at that. But you would, obviously, this is how cults work, and I'm going to call it a cult. They, they give lip service to the Bible, into Christianity, but they have to change Christ, you know. So they changed Jesus to just an ascended master, like what they were. He was one of the greatest ones. He existed from the higher level of, you know, one of the higher ones, level, levels of existence and came down. And so, you're gonna read the Bible with that lens. So when you read the Bible, you're gonna read it as, as how they interpreted it first, because you probably cling on to their teachings. The Jehovah's Witnesses kinda of do that. They said that, you know, their teachings are, are more pure than the Bible, but the Bible's okay. So I thought, after I read all these Eastern texts, I'm like, okay, now it's time to read the Bible. And I remember thinking, this is okay, like there's spiritual meaning here, but it's shallow. And I remember thinking Christianity, because all spiritual paths are true, right? I was postmodern and you're pantheistic, all spiritual paths are true, some are more concentrated and more and more advanced, higher level. Hinduism is a more higher level spirituality than Christianity, right? Whereas an atheist is also okay, but they're just low. You know, they're a, they're a new soul, right? That's why they can't grasp spirituality. So I thought, okay, Christianity, it has some truth to it, but it's just too watered down. And I remember li- reading the Bible and listening to it and thinking, because I didn't really read it. I, I couldn't actually sit and read this text. I'm like, okay, it's not worth it. I'll just listen to it in, in the audio Bible. I remember thinking, this is all nonsense, genealogies and all this other stuff. I said, "This is just kind of a waste of time, you know." You could tell it's too worldly because it has genealogies, and so they're not very spiritually focused. And I, and I, as a Christian now, I, I, I tell people that I don't think I was allowed—not really allowed—but I was just incapable of truly understanding it. It's like there was a veil over the over the meaning of Scripture, and its truth, and I couldn't actually see it. So I wrote the Bible off; didn't even finish it. And I wrote it off as being not very profound. So I kind of gave up.
0: Even though Atticus concluded that he was finished with the Bible god was not finished with atticus something he would discover just a few
1: months later completely out of the blue so our son is born and for about for about a month or two i start getting really worried about sin which is out of nowhere because there is no reason for me to think about it we're doing so great spiritually and now for some reason i hear in my mind constantly the name jesus christ i don't know why what if jesus christ is the only way what if you will be judged what if there is a judgment and, and I remember not liking these thoughts, and I'm trying to avoid them, but I start getting really concerned, like, no, th- there's no way I'm wrong. You know, I know what Jesus taught, and, and he didn't teach that there was a judgment because the scriptures were twisted, right? So even though you can read the scripture, if it's interpreted wrongly, your flesh will grab onto that wrong interpretation and neglect the scripture. But I knew he said it because I had read it. And so, the, and so I, I feel this conviction. And then one night, I had been distressed in my soul about whether or not I was right or wrong. So... Um, so I watched, for some reason, I watched a creationist versus three atheists video on YouTube, it was by Kent Hovind, and it's kind of a famous video, I would recommend anybody to watch it, where Kent Hovind, who's a homeschool creationist guy, debates three atheist college professors, and he just mops the floor with them. It was, it was brutal, and I believed in evolution now, because if the spirit evolved, right, so would nature also evolve, right? So I liked evolution, but watching the creationist story, I realized, wow, this is very profound evidence. And uh, not that you can rationalize your way to God, but I think the Spirit had convicted me that that, that God the Father is the creator. And I didn't know about Jesus Christ, how he created through Jesus Christ. I didn't know about that yet. But I watched this video and I was feeling pretty convinced of it. And he presented the gospel at the end. And I remember remember thinking before hearing the gospel that that's just too simple. And it's not very profound. And it's kind of foolish, right? Like, okay, Jesus died for the sins of everybody. I was like, no, I don't, you know, it's too simple. And uh, as the scripture says, the cross of Christ is foolishness to them who are perishing. So I was a living testament to that scripture, but for some reason this time, I thought, okay, I was feeling convicted, I was feeling concerned. So I prayed, I always prayed, even in my atheistic times, you know, times that are hard, I always prayed to a God. And now, you know, I had my idol, and I even prayed to Shiva, Krishna, Vishnu, Brahma. I prayed to all these other gods, and I would just interchange them because you could pray to all these different gods, because they're different manifestations of the one true God, as what I believed. But this time I I said, I'm just gonna pray to God, and I guess to the Father, but I just prayed Mm -hmm. generally. I said, God, I said, what is the truth? I don't know. I'm very concerned and I'm distraught." I said, God, I don't know. Is it Jesus Christ the only way? Whatever that means, Christians say that. I don't know what that means. Is he the only way or does the soul evolve through countless reincarnations and become one with you again? Do we, do we progress? Do we transcend? Is transcendentalism real? I said, God, what is the truth? I just don't know. And I'm very concerned. And for some reason, I felt compelled to open up the Bible. And somehow I made it to Acts 4. And it gives me chills to think about it. And it says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it was a very specific answer to my very specific prayer. And I felt very convinced at that point. And I felt very convicted that I had been praying to all these different gods and that I had not received Jesus Christ as as, as Lord and Savior. And so I think I repented genuinely then. And I, and I felt very, very convicted. It was just such a powerful moment. And uh, my heart's racing even, you know, because I was very excited. Because there's also a sense of relief, you know, that, that, that now I believe the real God is talking to me through His Word, and so of course, if God's going to answer questions, you're going to ask Him another one, like Abraham. And so I asked Him another question. I said, God, what about these beings of light? I believe that that many people encountered them through hallucinogenic drugs or through meditation, through all these experiences. And I've had experiences with being washed in light of sorts. I never saw a being, but I, me- I remember getting insights, like I said, supernatural revelation. So I said, Lord, what about these? What about these beings of light? What about these euphoric experiences people have in meditation? And um, what about this? How can, that, how can these beings of light not be good things? How can all this revelation, this knowledge and advancement in, you know, in, in humanity not be a good thing? Um, what, are, what are these people? I don't understand this. I, you know, I can't reconcile it. And somehow I made it from Acts to Second Corinthians. And you Christians know that's a long stretch. He answered again very specifically and said, do not be deceived, for even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So do his ministers appear as the ministers of righteousness. Very specific answer to my question, and it was just so profound. And I remember, I guess I fell on my face. I don't know. I just was so distraught at the at the extent of my sin and my rebellion and my idolatry. Um, that was my that that is what the Lord convicted me of most. It wasn't my other sins that I was worried about. It was how profound my idolatry was and the worship that I offered to all these pagan gods. So I ran and told my wife, as a good Christian should. I said, "Jesus Christ is the only way," and I think I've been deceived this whole time. And I think. Everything that I've been practicing is a lie. I said something general like that, and she's just like, okay. She was probably fed up with any kind of spiritual insight I had. She didn't care. And so I go to bed. I'm really excited. I'm feeling really good. And it's maybe like a couple hours later, and she's screaming. She was she was terrified. And I was concerned. I thought somebody was breaking in. I don't know what happened. And I go into the room, and she is shaking. She's so scared because she had, it's a dream? It was a dream or a vision or real life? I don't know. It was a dream that was very real if it was a dream, and if not, it really happened but the baby was sleeping in the crib next to the bed and she, sleep paralysis came over her where she couldn't move, she couldn't scream my name. She said she tried to for a while and she couldn't. And she said her legs started to move on their own, kind of walking across the wall, um, you know, walking across the wall to like tilt, you know, shift her body to where the legs were moving towards the crib. And she said the intent of the legs, like they had their own consciousness, the intent of their legs was to go kill the baby. And it was, it was like she sensed pure evil in her legs. It was a very strange thing. So, demonic possession, I don't know. Um, scary dream, you know, at the least, it was a terrifying dream that was real. So she was, she was so scared. And so she said, what do we do? I said, we, well, we call on Jesus's name. I guess, you know, we pray, we're gonna pray to Christ, and we're gonna pray to Jesus and ask him to save us. And so we prayed and that was the first time I think we slept together in the bed. You know, it had been a long time.
0: In the course of just one day, Atticus experienced a complete heart change. He had started the day as a Hindu mystic that was wondering if the teachings of Jesus might actually be true. Yet less than 24 hours later, Atticus was now sharing with his wife their joint need to call upon the name of Jesus to save them from spiritual oppression and blindness. Years of false beliefs erased in a single day and replaced with the confidence of the gospel. It was a change that would last.
1: I had so many New Age books and so many Eastern books and so many books on magic and, and other things. Because you can do it all, right? It's all just a form of spirituality. I had books on sorcerism, all, this, all these different things, and all of it was just rejected in one night. realized the next day we're going to rip these books up and throw them away. All of it. It's like a complete restart. No reason for it to happen, but by the Spirit of God. And I really, I think this is the mercy of God that He showed me the power of His Scripture. Out of all the other religious books I've read. Um, they're very profound, um, they're very deep philosophical, and they're very intricate, and they, you know, a lot of, it's heavy stuff, and people are like, "Oh, you've read that. So you tell them, like, oh, I've read the Mahabharata, and they're like, oh, wow. You know, they're impressed, um, but they're not alive. I, I had these supernatural revelations, I think, you know, like, a, like I shared before, um, about where I think I was getting revelation in meditation. I would hear these thoughts, and I thought it was profound, and maybe it was supernatural, but the Bible, His Word, it says that it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? Dividing the sun between the soul and the spirit and the joints of the marrow. So it, 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 no other book that I've ever read and all these other all these other religious texts, nothing is like the Bible. The Bible says it's alive, and it is. And the Lord spoke, not in a subjective voice, because I was used to that. The Lord spoke through His objective, unchanging Word, and uh, I, I'm really grateful that, that he had done that for me in the very beginning of my conversion, because now I cherish the word more than anything else, and I think every Christian needs to, um, because it is, it is what it says it is. It discerns the hearts and minds of man, and it'll, it'll cut to the core.
0: Shortly after destroying their books on mysticism and sorcery, Lauren placed her faith in Christ. And together, Atticus and Lauren made a complete 180 with their lives, including getting officially married and attending a local church. But while Atticus and Lauren were thrilled to embrace their new lives in Christ, not everyone was nearly as happy. Namely, Deva, Atticus's first spiritual mentor whom he had met while dressing her hair. By this point in time, Deva had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and Atticus realized that he had to share with her the real truth about eternity.
1: There's a move in Christianity to try to be very relative. Like, okay, I'm just gonna show people the love of God. And then, you know, and then when they ask me, uh, you know, give me a reason for the hope that's in you, then I'll share the gospel. And this, I think the Lord, again, showed me this very early on, that the cross of Christ is so contentious. Um, and we want to be, as Christians, very sensitive to people. We want to love people, and we want to show the love of God. Um, But the truth needs to be stated at a certain point in time. And the truth, no matter how much love you poured into these people, um, the cross is very offensive. And it just is, unless the Spirit of God is going to enliven you. So, Deva, We paid for her her cancer medication, and it was it was it was thousands of dollars. And I helped install equipment in 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 her apartment, you know, oxygen equipment so she could breathe, uh, water filter. I just did a lot of things for her. And I I do hair, I'm a hairstylist, and so I would do her hair for free because she couldn't afford it anymore. You know, she was in her late 60s, and she just uh you know she just didn't have any money. So I'm trying to help her, and I realized, wow, I need to share the gospel with her because I think she's going to die and um and so i sent her an email and i saved this email and i sent her as clearly as i could the gospel that we are under sin and that and that we need a savior and that that savior is only jesus christ there's neither there's no salvation in any other okay it's christ jesus said i am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by me it's very exclusive i was very scared to do it it was going to be one of the first witness encounters and i knew that she was against christianity the same way i was and so I shared this email and I said, Dave, I think that we've been deceived and I pray that, that my love for you over these years will be a witness that I care for you and I'm not doing this to be rude and, and I, I'm really sincere. So I sent her this email and she utterly rejected it. She said that, that it was spiritually ignorant to judge somebody else's path. Um, and um, she, just, she just utterly rejected it. And then she called me and she had scripture, kind of, or the, the, the biblical stories, but twisted by her teacher. And she just utterly rejected it and said that I was ignorant and said that she can no longer talk to me because of, you know, because I because I'm now going down this path that is not spiritual and that it's judgmental. And um, she just utterly rejected the gospel message. And the last, and it was maybe a few months later, I heard that she died. You know. Um, but I want to say that only the Christian can rest in hope, thinking that that the Lord in his gracious mercy presenting her the gospel towards the end of her life, after a year of rebellion, I think that that was not in vain. He says, my word will not return unto him void. So I think in his, in his mercy, she got the gospel uh, clearly, as clearly as I could, um, presented to her. And I am hopeful that, that in, in those last moments of her life, um, that, that she came to Christ. And I'm hopeful in that. And only the Christian can have that hope. Uh, nobody else can rest in that. And, and so I don't fear, because I believe that God is sovereign. And I believe that he's in control. So nobody's going to, to make it to hell that wasn't supposed to be there. And everyone, everyone is going to make it to heaven that's supposed to be there through Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I'm hopeful for her.
0: Yeah. Tell me about, um, tell me about your dad. Did you guys ever find restoration, reconciliation? Yeah, there's
1: reconciliation. He, uh, he was here for uh, my son's birthday. And, yes, there's reconciliation. We have a relationship. He gets to know his grandchildren. And, um, and I love him and I've forgiven him.
0: That's beautiful, man.
1: I think we can get caught up and think, oh, my family is unsaved. God can't save them. No, if God can save me, God, God can and and does save the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's a reconciling God. If he can reconcile us to himself and when we were rebels and 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 dead in the world without Christ, how much more can he reconcile our human relationships? And he does. So he's he's a good God.
0: In so many ways, Atticus's story is unique. As a self-righteous follower of Hinduism, mysticism, sorcery, and the New Age, Atticus truly believed that he was on a path of enlightenment and connection with God, whoever that might be. But on one night, his world fell apart as the words of the one true God of the universe pierced his heart and entered his soul. And let's not forget that we too have direct access to the same God and the same words that convicted Atticus. If you'd like to contact Atticus or if you'd like your haircut the next time you're in Houston, visit compelledpodcast.com and find our show notes where we'll provide a way for you to get in touch. Atticus told me that he would love to speak with anyone who wants advice on witnessing to friends or neighbors who are caught in the New Age or Hinduism. While you're at our website, you can also watch a four-minute video about Atticus that was made with much of the same footage from this podcast interview. My friends at the Texas Homeschool Coalition sent a video team to the interview and they made an excellent film that shares Atticus's journey. We'll also include some apologetics resources that Atticus recommended. And again, you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com. And don't forget to join our upcoming behind the scenes Zoom call this Thursday, March 11th with special guests, Doug and Selah Helms. You can RSVP at compelledpodcast.com Zoom. And then I'll email you the secret link. This episode was produced by me and my wife Sarah Hastings. Our editor is Zach Fowler. Our production intern is Ethan Adams, and our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Facchino Special thanks to Julie Curian for introducing me to Atticus. If you have a friend who you think should be uncompelled, please let me know. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode—a special behind-the-scenes episode with two-time NFL Super Bowl champion Bruce Collie. Bruce had everything that the world could offer. Money, women, drugs, and even two Super Bowl rings. But although he was on top of the world in his own eyes, he was falling apart on the inside. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday.
1: What happened with me was I, I, I got to the very top of my world. I'm getting ready to start a right guard. Uh, I'm getting ready to make, in today's dollars, about $600,000 in six months. Um, and yet even football was empty.
0: One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year. But we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.